The people call Richard Castle. The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Raise your right hand. Oh, sir. That's right. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Mr. Castle, what is it that you do for a living? I'm a murder mystery novelist. Have you held any other job? Yeah, six years as a civilian investigator working with the NYPD homicides for the 12th precinct. So, you're a bit of an expert when it comes to solving murders. Yes, and I use that expertise to lend authenticity to my novels. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, August 4th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Anyone and everyone can be an expert at something, so what is expertise really worth? That's just one of the themes that blends with our second theme of global warming and CO2, not from the political view, but from the science and reason view, if you will. We're no experts, but we know experts. So forgive me if I dare to suggest that we're going to be expert teasers about expertise and experts today. But before we introduce our in-studio guest, non-expert on experts, let me first remind one and all that you can, and you should, write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ at 5130 kHz, or on channel 292 at 6070 kHz, and of course, you can visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Now, he last joined us on our April 7th broadcast earlier this year, and Dave Plum, author of Climate Hope, An Antidote to CO2 Terrorism, is back to join us for a second round today. Welcome back, Dave. Good to have you here. Thank you. Dave, when you last joined us in April, uh, one of the first things you seemed to want to make clear was that you said, please don't call me an expert. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get into our climate change and CO2 themes today, we thought we'd explore the very nature of experts, given that we rely on them to educate and inform us on issues like climate change. So, Dave, when you say, please don't call me an expert, are you suggesting there's something wrong with being considered an expert or merely stating that you aren't one or both? (laughs) Well, both. I don't want to be lumped in with that group. Uh, In the last show, you asked what possessed me to write the book, and actually it's still a manuscript. rejections are coming in regularly from the publishers <laughs> so far. <laughs> Maybe someday it'll be a published book. Anyway, um, I didn't set out to write a book. It just kind of happened. I got interested in climate change after I watched An Inconvenient Truth, the same as a lot of other people. It was pretty alarming stuff. I read a book about it. It was even more alarming. But I know there's two sides to a story, so I read another book about the other side of the uh, issue and uh, came to realize that a lot of these people that are writing these books, these experts, are not really telling me much about climate. They're telling me about the things the other guys are doing that they disagree with. So basically, it's the, they're just shooting back and forth at each other. So I started to do my own research into into climate and uh, climate change, and I started to share those thoughts uh, with other people that were interested, letters to the editor, this sort of thing. And over the years, I built up quite a bit of um, this material. 
had it in Word files. I had it in Outlook files, various other things. And when uh, some people wanted to know more about it, I started to compile all this to put it together. And I realized that I had this stuff scattered all over the place and there's an awful lot of duplication. A lot of it was undocumented in terms of source and one thing and another. So I spent a year or two compiling it, getting all the source references put in. And I was going to get it into two or three files for easy reference. Well, that didn't happen. The opposite happened. I ended up with like about 40 some odd different files because all, all different topics. I also realized it wasn't all just about climate change. There was the psychology of the climate change debate. And then there was the science of climate change. So I had two different file folders on the computer that had those split out several chapters on, on the, uh, the psychology of the debate and 35 chapters what I came to call chapters on on the science of climate change and I got looking at this a year or two ago and realized that more than anything else this looked like a book so I thought why not make it into a book so that's how that came about that's how my interest came about well you must have been interested in this issue before to even start compiling information on such well, an organized it, level. I never cared what anybody else thought about climate change until some people started to take a whole lot of money out of my pocket and <laughs> fight it. And then I got really interested personally okay. because it's costing me a lot of money to support other people's bad ideas is what it comes down to. And I really don't care for that. So so that, that really piqued my interest to begin with. But I find the, the science uh, interesting in its own right. So when we did this podcast, a lot of people came back and as you did, and said, well, you sure sound like an expert. But what I found with the experts is they focus in on a tiny little bit of the picture. They don't see the big picture. It's like if I come to your place with a friend who's uh, an expert in uh, molecular physics, and you give us a, you put a mug of cold beer in front of each of us on a hot day and say, drink up. Well, my my expert uh, friend is going to whip out his handy-dandy pocket electron microscope because he's interested in in molecular physics and he's going to peer deeply into his beer and he's going to see a roiling madhouse of molecular activity. What he's looking at is Brownian motion compounded by effervescence and I understand that's in there too. But from his very limited perspective, he's going to come to what seems like a reasonable conclusion. He's going to look at this and say, my God, my beer is boiling. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas I don't look at things at, at that microscopic level. I'm going to pick up the mug of beer and take a good swig and say, man, that goes down good on a hot day. So that's the difference between the expert and what I consider myself to be, which is a generalist. I'm a big picture guy. The experts are pixel hunters. Are there no experts as who are big picture guys? And are the little guys all, aren't there any that, like, like when would someone be considered an expert legitimately? Or is there no such thing almost? I don't know if there there are some legitimate experts, probably. We can get into that when mm-hmm. we're discussing the CBC documentary, mm-hmm. The Trouble with Experts. A few people nail it, but there's a comment in there by, by one of the moderators of the show or one somebody they're interviewing on the show, and he said the only experts that actually get uh, exposure in the media on TV and all that are the guys that are always wrong. So I don't want to be one of the guys that's always wrong. As, as I say, the, the experts are they're pixel hunters. They're... Now, if you understand what pixels are, it's a picture element in, in like a, a, an electronic uh, digital screen sort of thing. If you've ever tried to adjust the margins on a Word document, you'll understand pixel hunting. 
Well, sure, we're into high def now, and we yeah. started off at 320 by 240, and 640 <laughs> by 480, well, and now 1280. It's getting, now but, it's getting up to 8K, and the interesting yeah. thing about an 8K picture is that it's a thirty-three, a little over 33 million pixels, which is 33 megapixels. Earth's climate has been going on for 4.54 billion years, and all this climate paranoia is based on 150 years of data. So if you do the math on that, it's roughly one part out of 31, 33 million, something like that. So in round numbers, one thirty millionth of the big picture is what we're looking at. Now, you don't have to look at the entire big picture any more than you have to look at, at, at an 8K ultra-high-definition uh, TV to see what the show is all about. But what these people are doing, looking at 150 years of data, is they're pixel hunting. They're looking at the very last pixel in the bottom right-hand corner of that 8K picture, uh, basically metaphorically speaking. And looking at that small a sample size of the big picture, they're trying to tell us what the show's all about. And they can't do it. I mean, the, these guys couldn't tell the difference between Star Wars and I Love Lucy. <laughs> But they want us to believe that we're watching Apocalypse Now. Well, the, the pixel was, would all look the same at the pixel that's, level. That's, at a the great, pixel level, that's a great analogy, yeah. At the pixel level, it all looks the same. So Whereas science, I look at the big picture, and I mean, when, when I look at a TV screen, a big picture TV screen, I sit back 10 or 15 feet and see the whole thing. So we I'm, need a, a society, to use the word loosely, is a generalist. Uh, we, would, would be, we would be lost without our generalists. And I was thinking when you're talking about experts that maybe we get bogged down in labeling somebody something and then using that label to dismiss what they have to say. For example, you don't say you're an expert. You call yourself a generalist. I would agree with that. But there are other words, too, that are bandied about in the media, especially like authority, a generalist, specialist, um, dilettante, or a polymath. And to distinguish between them or to label somebody, thinking of those distinctions is to automatically put him into a box that you can attack, that you can dismantle. For example, if I called you a dilettante, Dave, because you aren't an expert, and a dilettante, of course, is somebody who passionately pursues a particular interest without a necessary um, level of commitment or knowledge. And if I labeled you that way, all of a sudden I'm dismissing what you have to say. And, and, and I think that that's probably some, some critics may actually look at you and say that, okay, you're a dilettante, let's move on. Some other critics might say, Dave, you call yourself an expert, but we know there are no such things as experts, so let's move on. If I called yourself a generalist, well, you don't see the small picture, Dave. So you're wrong the, for that. I do see the small picture. I understand pixels. I understand Brownian motion and effervescence. I just, oh, I know, but there I just are so think many, there's a lot more to it than that. There are so many. Do you, do you understand the Navier-Stokes equations? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody under, come on, Bob. Nobody <laughs> understands the Navier-Stokes equations. I know what they are. <laughs> um, but my point, of course, is that in any endeavor, any large field like climate change, there are lit, quite literally thousands of facets to that diamond that nobody has the actual lifespan to be able to, to devote to understanding all of the pixels. And, and that's, that's okay. We don't have to understand all the pixels, do we, to see well, the big picture? But the picture. thing is that a lot of people have devoted their lives to explaining, defining, investigating um, a lot of the individual pixels. Yes. So a generalist like me, I, I can go and I can look at a lot of what these people have done, like uh, Malutin Milankovic, for instance, devoted a lot of his mm. life 
to studying the Milankovitch cycles, which are the primary drivers of climate on Earth. And if, if you know about the greenhouse effect, you should know about Milankovitch cycles because that's the other 90% of the equation of what drives climate. We teach the greenhouse effect. Nobody ever mentions Milankovitch cycles, and my question is, how come? Well, because the experts don't want you to know about that. The experts just want you to know about, about the, the greenhouse that, effect the because, that because, that's, because that's where the money is in carbon tax. You're not going to make any money out of preaching Milankovitch cycles, which is the really big story in climate change. So this is where I'm saying the experts are, are, are misleading us. I have a hard time believing that they don't know these things. I mean, they must know these things. This is information that any literate kid with a you know a modicum of curiosity and an internet connection can figure out for himself in a couple hours in an afternoon. So, the experts have to know it. Why why aren't they telling us? Politics, money. Well, again, we're we're as humans a little fallible, a little uh, self-serving. Oh no, so no, no, no. As experts, we're not. As humans, as experts, we are. As, as humans and as generalists, we are. As experts, we're not. And this CBC documentary, The Trouble of Experts, gets into that, and they tell you what you need to do to be an expert. There are experts on experts. They teach you how to be an expert. First, you have to be tall. You have to be several inches taller yeah. than I am, so I don't make the cut on being an expert right out the gate. You have to, to wear suits that cost as much as my entire wardrobe. You have to drive a car that costs two or three times as much as I've ever paid for a vehicle. But more than anything else, you have to learn to talk like an expert. And they teach you to stand up and, and use, uh, you know, big words and phrases, complicated, complicate the issue. I guess it's a BS baffles brains type of thing. You don't talk about being good at what you do. Now, I talk about being good at what I do, and I've told people that's a G and a D separated by two O's, not one, so don't expect miracles. <laughs> But I'm not infallible. An expert will never admit to that. An expert does not talk about being good at what he does. Uh, an expert talks about his core competencies. See, that's what I'm getting and, at, Dave, and, when and I And an expert that... will never, ever admit that he's wrong or that he doesn't know. There's lots I've been wrong about, and there's lots I don't know about, and I change my mind when new information comes to the fore that says to me that I was wrong about this and I need to change my mind. So that's definitely not expert behavior. You see, that's what I'm talking about when I say that that labeling somebody or defining somebody or, or, or putting a putting him in a box is not conducive to good argument scientifically, I think, or good political argument. No, and that's what a lot of these books do. They just shoot at the other guy. They don't really address the science. Nikki had seen it often, as every cop had. Otherwise, reliable eyewitnesses conflate or confuse details that seem indelible to those not caught up in the trauma of the incident. According to previous testimony, you use your expertise with the NYPD to add authenticity to your stories. Is that correct? The defendant killed Mrs. Beekman. I know what I saw. Just like you knew what you saw on February 2nd, 2015? Mr. Castle, did you give a statement to a Detective Neely of Westchester PD that you were an eyewitness to the murder of Eva Whitfield and that her husband Cole was the killer? Yes, I did. And was Cole Whitfield the killer? No. So you've been wrong before. Science writer David Friedman spent two years writing a book about expert predictions and their accuracy in many fields. His conclusion? They're wrong an astonishing amount of the time. 
experts are usually wrong. It's that simple. Like surprisingly, you can actually put a number on how wrong experts are. And it turns out to be, on average, roughly two-thirds of studies uh, in, in the top medical journals end up being wrong. And he is talking about respected academic experts. But today, we're told to get an expert for almost everything. We need an installation expert to set up our TV system, and a color specialist to paint our walls. Right now, grays are popular. And a relationship expert to sort out our marriage. You should not be deceitful, and when you're married, you're married in... Not to mention the experts we trust with our money and our government finances in a supposed science that's actually bogus to look at the results. Economists have studied the wrongness rate in economics journals and have concluded it's very close to 100%. Virtually all of the studies published in economics journals are wrong. Yeah, economic experts are notorious for being wrong with their predictions. But economists who operate on proven principles usually turn out to be right, at least that's been my experience, because they don't make explicit predictions, particularly with regard to market expectations. It seems to me that knowing how, for example, in economics, how supply and demand works is a far different thing from predicting the actions and choices of millions of independent individuals who push those supply and demand figures. And that's where I think it's in those variables and, and the human equation that experts always mess up. I, am I missing the point here? Well, you know, Paul Samuelson was the economist who actually did that, um, that uh, in-joke of the economist that he said Wall Street indices predicted nine out of the last five recessions <laughs> and, its mix, and its mistakes were beauties. And if you look at today's economists, or even climate change um, scientists, um, like a Paul Krugman down in the States as an economist, he is a Keynesian, right? And as a Keynesian, he thinks in those terms. And I look at him as somebody who has a mild interest and a personal <laughs> stake in economy. And I say that you're absolutely wrong. And me as a lay, layman, can see that you're wrong. He is so myopic in his Keynesian thought that he doesn't even he can't even uh, envision what capitalism is. I don't I don't even think he could define capitalism. And the same goes for the scientists in the climate debate, uh, Dave. That you were saying that sometimes they are so myopic when it comes to their own or to the big picture. They are so involved in their own little tiny pixel of the big picture that they're not they're not getting the implications in a broader sense. Yeah, without the pixel we wouldn't have the picture, would we? That is true and I'm not trying to dismiss their their research but I'm trying to say that when they are as mathematicians or climatologists or as uh, meteorologists or geologists stepping out of that sphere of comfort and into the political sphere, something that I think that we are more more or less experts on then they are stepping into territory where they are on shaky ground. Yeah, to address uh, Robert's comment about without the pixel, we wouldn't have the picture. Well, that's true, but here's the thing. The pixel isn't the picture. Yes. The picture is that pixel plus the other 29,999,999 pixels. So they're all important, and the experts are only looking at one of them. That's my point. The other thing you're saying about these economics experts and tying it into climate, it seems like if you're an expert in anything these days, you can add and climate change onto that. You've got Al Gore, who was an expert 
in politics and climate change. You've got David Suzuki, an expert in genetics and climate change. You've got uh, this Jeremy Rifkin, who does this thing about the third industrial revolution. He's an expert in economics and climate change. And it goes on with uh, Hollywood celebrities and university professors. If you're an expert in anything, you're an expert in that and climate change we used to federally and provincially here we used to have ministries of the environment now we have ministries of the environment and climate change <laughs> because everything is this and climate change like it's it's getting tacked onto everything this jeremy rifkin goes on and he's an expert in economics as some of the people you're talking about and and climate change and he talks about the earth's water cycle being all messed up and his solution you know what a solution is What's that? to getting the Earth's water cycle fixed up? We, we teach the kids in school to monitor how much water dad uses shaving. Does he talk about flow-restricted shower heads, about showering instead of bathing? Does he talk about not washing the car any more than you need to? Does he talk about gray water recycling, rainwater harvesting? How about not filling the swimming pool? Any of those sorts of things? No. Let's have the kids watch how much water dad uses shaving and, and monitor that. because And then that, try to shame the dad. Yes, and shame dad out of using so much water yes. shaving. That will fix the world's water cycle. And this is an economics expert talking about the climate. But he also talks about natural laws, and he says that, that economics has nothing to do with laws of motion. But then in the next breath, he says that economics is driven by laws of thermodynamics, which makes no sense to me. He says that the economic crisis of 2008 was caused by high oil prices. And I seem to recall something about subprime rates, but he doesn't mention any of this sort of thing. But this is an ex- economic, economics and climate change expert. And I don't want to be classified with those well, guys. I, I'm a generalist. I look at the big picture you know, and say, what's going on with climate? Just as we're sitting here talking, something just hit me like a ton of bricks. And it strikes me that the people who are calling themselves experts in one field, say, and are really promoting something else, are people who have an agenda and who use the the cloak of expertise to promote their agenda. Like, just to give you an example on the economic and climate front, front here, from July 16th Financial Post, climate change opportunities in the trillions, and it's got Bank of England Governor Mark Carney participating in the climate change summit they had in Toronto at that, on that date, and talking about all sorts of carbon pricing is the cleanest way for markets to judge the tangible exposure to climate change. I'm going, what the? This is pure BS. And this person's in charge of running economies. Even economically, what he's saying is insane, let alone climate-wise. And yet here he is, you know, the the authority that that everyone's listening to. Why do we bend over and take it from these people? Because it's not about... is, is, Is it religion? No, it's not about science anymore. It's about the economics of carbon taxation. Well, the politics of carbon yes. taxation. Yeah, yeah. There's no economics. <laughs> well, yeah. Other than the disaster that Well, follows. I don't know. When I look at my hydro bill and yeah, uh, when I look at the, you know, the, the additional taxes, carbon taxes that are coming on everything January 1st, I, that hits me economically. To me, that's home economics at least. Mm-hmm. So it's important. So if we're talking about generalist versus specialist, you know, I, I look at the field, field of philosophy as being the generalist field. That's the field that encompasses all the rest, and all the rest subsume under that. So really, the only generalists that would be out there would be the big picture guys in any particular case. And 
would you say that they are the only ones that can be legitimately considered experts, or is that delineated no. by a no, different I think, I boundary? Think, I think most people are generalists. Yes. Okay. I mean, about, in this, about most topics, about but, most but not topics. about the thing they know best. Right then they would then they would be a bit more of a specialist, yeah. A specialist, an ex. Uh, they'd have experience. I hate to use the word expert in that regard. I mean, aren't we being experts by criticizing the experts in a way? <laughs> <laughs> We're a bit suspect for sure. You know, there's a, a, a thing about ex- being an expert that touches on what you're talking about and touches on what you're talking about, Dave. When we're why do the public listen to the Al Gores? Why do the public listen to the Paul Krugmans? Why do they listen to these experts? Part of the definition of being an expert is a person who has a, a comprehensive and authoritative knowledge of a skill in or a particular area. And it's that authority, that authoritative knowledge that I think people um, are, are prone to listening to them. Oh, this is, this is Al Gore. He, was, he has a constituency. He was elected. He was a vice president. I should listen to them. He has authority. He speaks with authority. He seems to know what he's talking about. And that's a danger, I think. Dave, comment? Well, and this this comes back to what I was saying about this uh, documentary. Where they're saying there are people that teach you how to be experts, and they teach you to, to never admit you were wrong. You do not use conditionals. You don't say if or sometimes. Uh, it's always. It's never. You speak boldly and confidently, and you stand up and and you present yourself as though you really seriously know what you're talking about. You don't. They don't teach you to understand anything about your subject matter. They teach you how to present yourself as though you do. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, the the uh, the documentary to which you're referring is called "The Trouble with Experts." It's a CBC documentary. You can search it online. And it was aired on March 26, 2015. Very fascinating overview of, well, the trouble with experts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, here's, they, they here's, an, interesting, uh, here's an interesting little, little bit of, uh, I don't know, trivia of one, because you just brought it up when you said that you don't use qualitative language if you're an expert because you don't want to be proven to be, you're very authoritative and you don't want to be uh, attacked, right, for your expertise. You don't want to sound uncertain about anything. Right. Well, I have in front of me the abstract from um, a paper by um, Erickson et al. called The Role of Deliberate Practice in the Acquisition of Expert Performance. It's the original paper where people got the notion that after 10,000 hours of practice at something, you are then an expert, quote-unquote, in that field. Of course, that is incorrect. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the paper's abstract, it's a very long paper. I didn't read it all. But the abstract actually uses the qualitative things. They, they talk about in most domains of expertise, for example, they say, or they say many characteristics once believed to reflect innate talent, you know, that kind of a thing. They're trying to hedge their bets, saying mm. that, look, we're, we're not experts in this, but it seems to be that in these certain situations, 10,000 hours of practice, thereabouts, you know, makes one um, competent, at least, in an area. So you would think, but not necessarily. Yeah, but you see, the, the, the danger is that people look at this paper, which seems to be clearly, you know, well written from a scientific point of view, and, and they're not trying to be experts, they're just trying to put forward their research and make conclusions from it, being, of course, careful to use those, um, the language which would give them an out if they're incorrect. Um, and then people latch on that and then conclude, and then you got this meme on Facebook that says, 10,000 hours makes you an expert in everything. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of poor analysis of the research, I think, that we're suffering from and the politicians are picking up on. It's the kind of a politician who would say that, oh, 10,000 hours, you're an expert at something. It's the kind of politician who would say that, well, Al Gore said this, so it's right. 
you know, so you see what I'm getting at? There's the danger of not doing your homework. I think you need to look at common sense, though. Neil deGrasse Tyson in his Cosmos of Space-Time Odyssey series says that Venus was once an idyllic place like, like Earth, and he says it's so hot, not because it's closer to the sun, while it's actually 42 million kilometers closer to the sun. And it's like this gentleman doesn't understand the inverse square law. Now, the inverse square law was originally developed for uh, uh, gravity, but it applies to radiation as well. And it says that the, the relationship between gravity or, or radiation between two bodies in outer space varies in, inversely with the square of the distance between them. Mm -hmm. Now, that sounds complicated, but what it means in simple terms, if, if, you're, if I'm standing on a cold day one, one meter away from a campfire, I'm getting so much heat from that campfire. If you're standing two meters away, you're not getting half as much heat. You're getting the square of that. You're getting right. one quarter as much heat. And if you're standing three times as far away, three meters away, you're only getting one ninth as much and so on. So the fact that, that, that Earth is 42 million kilometers further from the sun than Venus means that Earth gets a little, uh, roughly half the solar radiation that Venus gets. And this guy is an esteemed international astrophysicist. An authority, isn't An he? An authority. He's, he he's, he's an, a well-recognized authority on astrophysics who apparently, from all intents and purposes, from what I can see, does not understand the inverse square law. Now, the inverse square law should be a thorough understanding of that, should be a prerequisite for admission to astrophysics 101. I can't believe that he doesn't understand this. So why is he telling us this? When it well, clearly isn't true, and it should be again, something that he understands. Like, so, like, so to me, I look at this and I say, well, listen, I'm not an expert astrophysicist, but I've got enough schooling to understand the inverse square law. I've, I've got enough practical experience on planet Earth to know that when you tip the axis on this little orb a little bit towards the sun, it gets up to like 40 degrees centigrade here, and when you tip it a few degrees away from the sun, it gets down to minus 40 degrees centigrade. And to me, that's a wide range of temperature. Sure and it has to do with the amount of sun we're getting just by tipping this little ball of rock and water a little bit towards the sun and a little bit away from the sun. Third rock I, from the sun. <laughs> I, I can't imagine the difference it would make to move this whole ball of rock and water 42 million kilometers closer to the sun. <laughs> I think it would become a lot like Venus in pretty short order. <laughs> you know, you but I'm not an expert. See, I'm just a generalist. I look at this from a common sense perspective, from, from my own experience, and I say some of what the experts are telling me doesn't make sense. You know, you're reminding me of what um, Christopher Monckton said when he was a guest on the show. He said that the value of a liberal education, small or liberal, of course, but um, a, a, general, a general education is that you can detect, you know, rot when you see it. Yeah. And I, we're educated people here. Yeah. As a matter of fact, a lot of society have degrees and, and, and good degrees, and we're starting to detect the rot. Yeah, that's right. In the end, there's a very, very old philosophical principle at stake here, and that is that the truth is the truth is the truth. However many lies are told, however many people tell the lies, and however important the people who tell the lies conceive themselves to be. And the truth is, and we now know this is the truth, that global warming isn't a problem. And let me now turn the tables on you a bit and ask you 
a question, mm. and it'll be very revealing by how you answer it. I'm going to ask you a straightforward scientific question about the global warming issue. Now, as you know, the theory is that down comes the sunlight in through the atmosphere, it comes through in the short wave, so it pierces straight through the atmosphere, hits the ground, is displaced to the long wave where it can interact with greenhouse gases, gets stuck on the way out, and so it can't get out again, and so the planet, atmosphere, and then the oceans warm up. That's the theory. Right. So, supposing the oceans and the land do warm up by, let us say, one degree Celsius, Will the amount of outgoing radiation from the Earth's surface escaping all the way out through the atmosphere into space go up with warming of the surface, stay the same if the surface warms, or go down if the surface warms? Down. And why do you say that? Because I thought it was the answer you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> that is indeed very re revealing about you and how, how congenial you are as a host. I However, think the obvious answer would be up. <laughs> the obvious answer would be up, and of course you're quite right. Forgive me, gentlemen, if I tell you things you already know, but even the best informed people tend to think of the Gulf Stream as an oceanic river of warm water coursing up the Atlantic coast. In reality, though, it's a rather narrow ribbon of fast-moving current, which acts as a kind of wall, keeping the warm equatorial waters here from mixing with the cold Arctic waters along here. So naturally, the farther east this dividing wall moves, the colder the Atlantic coast of North America becomes. Which is exactly what I believe happened. Something in this area here has caused a slight diversion in the direction of the currents. The diversion increases as it moves northward, producing the freak weather we've been having. Then our mission is to locate the cause of this diversion and correct it, if possible. Exactly. We're entering the critical area now. I propose we run submerged through the night to take readings at lower depths. Aye, sir. Chip down the boat. Aye, sir. Make your depth 200 feet and keep it steady. Rig for deep submergence. You are listening to Just Right on whatever device or by whatever means you happen to be hearing my voice right now. And of course, you can listen to any and every past broadcast of Just Right and much more by visiting www.justrightmedia.org. And to listen to our first round of discussions with our in-studio guest today, Dave Plum, check out April 7th show, number 447. CO2 is not the only thing that can cause climate change. Uh, that's certainly what happened in that episode of the 1960s TV series, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, that we just listened to, in which the Gulf Stream was redirected by an underwater shift in the land masses and continental shelves. What I found interesting by the description that the person gave in that show was that the Gulf Stream sounded a lot more like the jet stream in our atmosphere than it did like a gentle body of water that just flows through the ocean and mixes with all the water. The way they described it, it was, it was like a wall of, of, a, of a fast flowing current that separated the cooler part of the ocean from the warmer part. And of course, these are just some of the dynamics we don't see here on the surface and obviously a lot of the Earth's warming is caused by what's happening in the oceans. Is there any studies going on in this field and other issues besides CO2 <laughs> that, that relate to the climate? 
There's lots of information, uh, lots of studies. There's lots of people that know what's going on. It's just not getting into the mainstream media discussion about climate change. We hear all of this stuff about uh, uh, sea level rise. And you hear about places like Kiribati was the, is a South Seas island nation. It's a big coral island and 32 atolls. Now, an atoll is basically an extinct volcano ringed with coral that's built up over millions of years so you can live on it and and it's one of the the darlings of the uh, climate change people saying because we're burning fossil fuel and glaciers are melting sea levels are rising there's other things going on in the pacific ocean the pacific ocean is disappearing now this is going to take about two quarter of a billion three hundred million years to happen but america is moving towards asia and there are islands out there there's uh, japan uh, Hawaii, Kiribati, and a, and a bunch of other islands that, that are going to be crushed between Asia and America like a smart car between colliding transport trucks. And <laughs> apologies for the graphic imagery, but that's reality. I mean, these islands, th they're history. It's, it's just taking time. Uh, Kiribati is uh, one of the islands that's near the edge of the Pacific Plate. Now, the Pacific Plate is moving underneath the adjacent Indo-Australian, Philippine, and Eurasian plates. It's being, uh, the technical term is tectonic subduction. It's being drawn down under those plates. And these islands are firmly affixed to the Pacific Plate. So as the Pacific Plate goes down, these islands are going down, and you're into a frame of reference thing here, where if you're standing on, on a piece of land, and water is encroaching further and further onto the land, it's easy to think that sea levels are rising, but nobody ever stops to think that maybe the island is sinking. Yeah. So, so there's that. So we never hear about tectonic subduction. Uh, we never hear about uh, volcanic subsidence. Now, volcanic subsidence, when a volcano is active and growing, keeps getting bigger and bigger, but eventually it gets exhausted. It becomes what they call extinct. It stops spewing out all this matter. Now you've got this huge hole down into the earth where it spewed out all this volcanic matter over, over a number of years. And that starts to erode. And not only that, but, but these volcanoes are massive. I mean, the biggest mountain on earth is where? People will say Everest. That's the highest no, mountain. The biggest mountain on earth is Mauna Loa. Okay. And it actually depresses the seabed underneath it by eight kilometers and that's on the pacific plates and i'm not sure how far that depression that mauna loa alone causes mauna kea is very nearly as large uh, and they're not that far from kiribati so that might be causing part of the problem too but people don't think about this so this is tectonic subduction depression of the of the seafloor underneath the volcano but after the volcano becomes extinct of course it starts to to erode it starts to collapse in on itself now in 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 the case of uh, the south sea coral islands atolls uh, rings of uh, coral start to build up around these extinct volcanic cones and as these cones subside uh, through tecton or through volcanic uh, subsidence, the, the coral continues to grow. Now, generally speaking, the coral can grow at the same rate as the subsidence or maybe even a little more. So it comes above the surface and you can live on it. And the big problem with Kiribati, of course, is human degradation of the environment because it's grossly overpopulated. There's nothing much to do there in terms of industry. All the people have to do really is breed and accept foreign aid to keep going. The environment is, is, is badly polluted. It's, 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 it's just overburdened with human population. So as a result, the coral growth can no longer keep up with the, uh, with the volcanic subsidence in that area. 
so that's another factor that's that's causing Kiribati to look like sea levels are rising. A third factor is uh, isostatic rebound in the northern hemisphere. Now, uh, 18,000 years ago, there were several kilometers of ice over top of this part of the world that started to melt. The last glacial episode, we're in an ice age that's been going on for over two and a half million years, so we can't see the last ice age because we're in the last ice age right now. Uh, but the last glacial period ended about 11,400 years ago, and since then we've been in uh, a short-term warming trend of uh, typically that lasts about 10,000 years, and we've been in at 11,400 years now. It's called an interglacial period, but what happens during interglacial periods is because all this massive ice goes off the northern hemisphere continents, the continents start to rebound upward, and it's called isostatic rebound. Now, as those continental masses rise with the weight of the ice being released from them, they draw up the adjacent continental shelves and seafloors, and all that seafloor rising around the northern continents displaces seawater that has to go somewhere. So where it goes is down south uh, towards the equator where there was no pressure of glaciers where there's no isostatic so, rebound. So it would out. look like the sea was dropping in some places and rising in others. Precisely. Right? Precisely, yeah. yes. So all this water being displaced slowly in the northern hemisphere, that's a result of isostatic rebound. You've got that. You've got uh, volcanic subsidence. You've got uh, tectonic subduction. All these things are going on, and they're affecting these South Seas islands, and it makes it look like sea level is rising. Now, in the case of isostatic rebound, it is true sea level rise. We're talking millimeters a year. It's not a huge thing. And, and to tie all that into glaciers disappearing from Greenland with all this other stuff that's going on tectonically, again, I'm not an expert in this stuff. I'm sure that the melting glaciers maybe have something to do with it, although my understanding is that the mass of ice that's disappeared from Greenland is almost exactly the same as the mass of ice that has accumulated in Antarctica over the last few decades. So I think that's pretty much a wash, and the rest of it can be explained with all these tectonic actions that are going on that nobody ever talks about. What you're, what you're bringing up are all these different pixels to the big picture of climate change that, like as you said, yeah, good nobody's way of talking it. about. They only talk about those things that fit their political and economic agenda and, in, in order to tax us. And, and it all us. comes back to carbon. Which, yeah. which is they why we're always talking about CO2. A, which is only a small pixel in the picture. And this conversation we had during the break, I, I asked what would happen if, if on Earth if we removed all the nitrogen, which is 71% of the Earth's, 78% of the Earth's atmosphere, 78% of the Earth's atmosphere. 78.08%. Yeah, and oxygen is 21% of the Earth's mm -hmm. atmosphere, so that's like 99% of that Earth's atmosphere. Suppose we were to remove all the oxygen and all the nitrogen without adding a single molecule of CO2. Now, Earth's present uh, CO2 is 0.04% is of the atmosphere. If we took out all the nit nitrogen and oxygen without adding any CO2, what would Earth's atmosphere be? Well, I guessed at um, a huge percentage, but I was wrong because of argon. Argon's 93% of what's left, and, and yeah. CO2's actually 4%. So even if we took away all the nitrogen and oxygen, we've still only got 4% CO2 in the atmosphere, yes. and 93% argon and a few percent of other gases. And people talk about CO2 percentages as though that's a be-all and end-all of everything. So let's throw out some numbers here. Uh, within half a percentage point, give or take a little bit, uh, Venus 
has 96% CO2 in its atmosphere, and Mars has 96% CO2 in its atmosphere. Bo- both Venus and Mars. Now, Venus has a really thick atmosphere, Venus right? Has, Venus, the atmosphere of Venus is, is actually 96.5% CO2, and the atmosphere of Mars is 95.35. So I'm saying let's just round that up and down a little bit and call it 96% for ease of discussion. But here's the thing. If I walk into this room and I got two bags of money, I got money bag A and money bag B, and I say to you, Robert, you can have 10% of what's in money bag A or you can have 100% of what's in money bag B. Which one are you going to take? <laughs> well, I know the trick to that one. Most people would go for the 100% of something. Yeah. Right? Whereas although the, right the, question although the is 10% how, might be larger than... Yes, and the right question is how much is in the bag. Right. Right? Nobody ever asks that about, about CO2 when they're talking about percentage of CO2 in the atmosphere. Nobody ever asks, percentage of what? Now, so, so here's, here's the figures, okay? Earth's atmosphere has 400 parts per million of CO2. Mars has 953,000 parts per million, and Venus has 965,000 parts per million. But if you look at actual tonnage, atmospheric mass, now this is gigatons, and a gigaton is a billion tons. Earth has over 2,000, 2,040 gigatons, 2,040 billion tons of CO2 in its atmosphere. It's a lot of CO2. Okay, Mars has 23,830 gigatons in its atmosphere, which is 12 times the actual mass. Okay, so you're asking how much money is in the bag. Well, there's a dollar in this bag. There's $12 in that bag. Okay. Venus has 463,000, sorry, 463,200,000 gigatons of carbon dioxide in its atmosphere. Okay. Now, that's 227,059 times as much actual mass of carbon dioxide as Earth has in its atmosphere. So, so if you're talking in terms of money, uh, Earth has a dollar's worth, okay? Mars has $12 worth. Venus has $227,059 worth of CO2 in its atmosphere. And people get all hung up on these percentages without asking percentage That's of right. what. And so the, the of what so the real is really, is, really important. The real question is, which bag would Neil deGrasse Tyson pick? The thing is, he'd be one of those people who wouldn't ask percentage of what, wouldn't he? Apparently not, no. No, he talks about Earth's atmosphere going up to 600 parts per million, which is a 50% increase. And 50% sounds like an awful lot, but it's 50% of next to nothing. So if you're going to compare the atmospheres of Venus, Mars, and Earth in terms of climate change or climate modeling, you really have to look at all the big, you know, all of the pixels in a big picture. Not just look at CO2. You look at have the density of the atmosphere, the albedo of the planet, how close it is to the sun. Does it have plate tectonics? Does it have subduction? All of these things. Does it have and a magnetosphere? That does it has a magnetosphere, yes. <laughs> and if you don't look at all of that, you're not an expert. You're a charlatan. Exactly. And if you do look at all that, you probably have to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> As the planet warms, there is an increase in the amount of outgoing radiation from the Earth's surface which we can measure. And why is this point so absolutely crucial? It is because of this. The whole debate on any of these big policy questions, in the, on, in the end, always boils down just to one single, simple question. 
And you have to, first of all, as a policy analyst, as I used to do this sort of stuff for Margaret Thatcher, you have to think, what is the right question to ask? And I would submit to you that the right question to ask is, for a given proportionate increase in the atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide, which is cast by the bedwetters as the villain of the piece, how much warming will we get? globally. How much warming for a given increase in CO2 concentration? That's the only question that matters. Now this is hardly something that's worth worrying about whatsoever. A little bit warmer weather would actually be good for the planet, good for the creatures that live on it, and as evidence of that, perhaps 1% of the world's creatures live in the Arctic and the Antarctic, and perhaps 90% live in the tropics. Why? Because warmer is better for life than colder anyway. So a little bit of warming isn't going to do anyone any harm on any view. The entire case for assuming that you're going to get this three and a quarter degrees Celsius of warming for a doubling of CO2 over the next 150 years, the entire case is based just on one false assumption. That false assumption which is built in to all the computer models on which the, in case, the case entirely rests, that assumption is that as the world warms in response to the extra CO2, or for any other reason, mm -hmm. then mm. less outgoing radiation will escape into space. Now this is contrary to reason, it's contrary to elementary physics, but that is what the computer programs that run these models are told to assume. See, the computer models can't tell us the answer to our question about what is the effect of CO2 on temperature, how much warming we, we, will we get. They are told that information at the outset. So they're programmed to know the answer, and actually it's the wrong answer, to the question we're trying to ask them. So they are valueless for this purpose. But they are useful in that that demonstrates very clearly what the official view is. The official view is extra warming of the planet at the surface, less outgoing radiation, escapes into space. This is bombing. We put a satellite up called the Earth Radiation Budget Experiment Satellite. This went up, oh, uh, around 20 years ago now. And it simply has a cavitometer pointing at the Earth and measuring how much radiation is coming off the Earth's surface. Now, in fact, it measures radiation coming off from a particular altitude above the Earth called the characteristic emission level. For technical reasons, that's where the radiation appears to be emanating from. But the point is that a detailed study just published by Professor Richard Lindzen, who is the Alfred P. Sloan Professor of Meteorology and Atmospheric Sciences in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. This is the guy who knows more about the atmosphere than anyone else in the world. He's been studying it for 40 years. He has done a paper where he has simply correlated the changes in surface temperature with changes in the outgoing long-wave radiation, or outgoing radiation of all kinds, in fact. And what he's found is that as the Earth warms, more radiation gets out into space, exactly as you said when you eventually answered the question in a way which you thought was correct rather than congenial. <laughs> so, uh, and this is quite right. So, so what we now know is that more radiation gets out to space as it warms. And if the radiation gets out to space, what is it not doing? It's not staying down here causing global warming. It's really as simple as this. 
And that, of course, was Lord Christopher Monckton in conversation with Michael Corrin back in 2009 on the CTS television network, just a few years before we actually interviewed uh, Lord Monckton in 2012, Robert, wasn't it? That was the year that he joined us on the show. That was a great show. I really enjoyed his presence here. Oh, yeah, and he sure knew his stuff. So small wonder that the science has to be settled in the sense of from the political point of view, uh, meaning that any further discussion on the official science is no longer an option or entertain. That's what we're being told. So what did you think of Corrin's example there, or of uh, Lord Monckton's example of, 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 you know, the more heat you have, the more the planet radiates out instead of being cap- captured in like, like we're taught on, on the whole global warming idea? Again, I'm not an expert on this, but going going from personal experience, if you put more heat into an object, more heat radiates out of it. I mean, everyday experience tells me that. If I heat up a ball bearing and hold it in my hand and it's hot, and then I heat it some more and hold it in my hand, it's hotter still because it's radiating more heat. I mean, that, that's that's common sense, and I understand. Yeah, yeah, and if there was I understand a how the insulation effect of, sure. the, of the greenhouse effect keeps some of that heat in the planet. But here's the thing. They don't talk about the checks and balances. They don't talk about the uh, the negative feedback loops. Or uh, life, as, uh, as well as, as the Gaia uh, hypothesis is another element to this. Yeah, on that subject, what life form has made the, the greatest impact on Earth's climate? Plants, I would imagine. Or plankton. Yeah, blue-green algae. Or algae. Cyanobacteria. Yeah. About three billion years ago started to oxidize the places. Because of this cyanobacteria. Took, took this, the CO2 out of the, the atmosphere. The only reason we're here is because of blue-green algae. Mm. Yeah, you know. Anyway, that's, that's you know, another subject. Well, I'm not but, cleaning that out of my tub anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let that the Earth still has plenty, not to worry about it. Uh, but, yeah, they don't talk about the negative feedbacks. And, and what happens is that as... The, the place warms up, you get more evaporation. More evaporation creates more cloud. More cloud reflects more sunlight back into space. So that's one negative feedback loop. More evaporation also means more clouds, which means more rain. And in cold places, it means more snow. Now, snow, fresh fallen snow, has an albedo of about 90. It means 90% of the sunlight that hits fresh fallen snow reflects back into space. Uh, the ocean, I don't have the figures here. I didn't bring them with me today, so I'm going from memory on some of this. The ocean, I think, has an albedo of about 0.1, which is 10%, which means that uh, 90% of the uh, sunlight that hits the ocean goes into the ocean. Same thing with tropical rainforests. Well, any kind of uh, forest, dark green matter, absorbs a lot of heat. So if we want to reflect a lot more sunlight back into space, what we need to do is get a whole lot more lighter areas on the planet. So we need more snow and we need more deserts because deserts have a high albedo. They reflect a lot of sunlight back into space. But it's a case of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. The, the cure is worse than the effect that we're, that we're trying to cure. Uh, well, in fact, isn't the argument that CO2 is good for the planet? It is. And it is. We live in a time, if you look at the big picture again, we live in a time of nearly unprecedented low CO2 and, and, uh, and low global temperature. The last time this happened was about a quarter of a billion years ago. Now, and, I, I get And it only lasted for a short period of time, 15 million years or so. We've been in a low period, but apparently <clears throat> CO2 levels are rising slightly, not in the... In the, in the not as much as they need to. No, but still... Apparently, I'm reading an article by Lawrence Solomon, just published here on June 24th, where he's talking about rising CO2's bright side, and where now from the satellite images that they're taking, 
they have actually seen that all vegetation types have greened, including tropical rainforest, deciduous and ever, uh, evergreen boreal forest, scrubland, semi-deserts, they've all just blossomed. Tree lines are moving north, and life on the planet is flourishing as never before. Uh, just from the slight increase in CO2, at least whether it's cause and effect is another issue entirely, of course. But the fact that uh, there is more CO2 seems to be good for life on the planet. Yeah. And so why are we even worried about cutting back on because, reflections? Because a couple of years back, the U.S. Supreme Court declared carbon dioxide to be a toxin. Carbon <laughs> dioxide is plant food. If carbon dioxide is a toxin, so is water. Maybe we should be trying to get rid of all the water on the planet. The discussion has become so politicized, it's just become stupid. There's no common sense left in it anymore. Yes, yeah, CO2... Carbon dioxide is plant food, and, and if we burned all the fossil fuel there is that we know of on planet Earth, if we could harvest it and burn it all tomorrow, we would put the uh, CO2 level back up to about uh, 2,500 parts per million, which is right where it was in the Jurassic period. In the Jurassic period, we had giant animals, we had giant plants. Life loved the Jurassic climate. And by the way, the global temperature was about 25, 26 degrees centigrade, which is 10 or 15 degrees warmer than it is right now. And we're all in a panic about going up two or three or four degrees centigrade. Well, it's got a long ways to go to get back to where the Jurassic climate was that life so loved. Mm -hmm. So CO2 is, is what? Should we not even worry about it? Not even think about it? Yeah, we should worry about it. We don't have enough of it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and plus we've got, we've got Earth's the Milankovitch cycles, okay, we've got for the next 25,000 years, orbital eccentricity is decreasing. For the next 11,400 years, uh, axial obliquity is decreasing. And the continents continue to drift northward toward the poles. And Milankovitch proved through his studies that we get glaciers in the northern hemisphere when we have minimal eccentricity, which we're coming into, when we have minimal obliquity, which we're coming into, and when continents are mostly polar distributed, which we have, and it's getting more so. So for the next 10 to 20,000 years, we have to worry about the glaciers coming back. And yes, there's going to be short-term warming and cooling trends within that. But the warming and cooling trends, you hear the experts talk about decadal temperatures, which means they're looking at things on a decade basis. Or even if you look at it in terms of centuries, okay, what they're looking at in, in terms of the big picture of climate, okay, they're looking at Brownian motion and effervescence. <laughs> it's going on. It always has. It always will. It doesn't mean anything. When I sit back for 10 or 15 feet and look at the big picture, I see a test pattern because that's as exciting as it is because right now, right now we live in a climate situation. It never gets better than this on planet Earth. This is as good as it gets, people. And instead of trying to change it or stop it, we should be studying it, trying to understand it, understand what's coming and how to prepare to survive it. Well, Dave, you may not claim to be an expert. You certainly so, uh, sound to be an authoritative uh, voice in climate change to me. Our guest today has been author Dave Plum, who we must now thank for having offered us his lack of expertise on everything from expertise to carbon dioxide to Venus and Mars and what's going on under the oceans. Thanks, Dave. It's been fun. Uh, funny, you don't look like a non-expert. I don't know. But then again, what do we really know? You can find out by joining us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be 
right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Uncle Martin, I do not know the first thing about art. Now suppose somebody walks up to me and asks me a question. Don't answer and look intelligent. Oh, that'll never work. Of course it will. All you have to do is look like a genius. Like this. Ah. <laughs>